Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. America is corn country. The United States is by far the world's largest producer, and the starchy plant is included in a growing array of non-food products, including sandpaper, eyeshadow, tires, and diapers. Corn's popularity is putting upward pressure on prices, and that is hitting both consumers and companies. Forty percent of the country's corn is used to make ethanol, that is mixed with gasoline to make it cleaner. A third of U.S. corn goes to feed cows, chickens, and pigs. The livestock and dairy industries say blending corn with gasoline drives up animal feed costs and ultimately food prices at the grocery store. Advocates of corn ethanol contend it is cleaner than gasoline and say the food versus fuel fight is overblown. I'm Greg Dalton, and over the next hour, we'll discuss corn, cars, and cows with our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. We're pleased to have with us three guests deeply involved in the debate over king corn. Colin Carter is Professor of Agricultural Economics at the UC Davis. Neil Curler is CEO of Pacific Ethanol. And Michael Marsh is CEO of Western United Dairymen. Please welcome them to Climate One. Thank you. Welcome, gentlemen. Uh, Colin Carter, let's begin with you. Uh, when do we start to put corn in gasoline and why? Well, in 2001, I think about uh, 1% of the gasoline was ethanol. And uh, more recently, it's closer to 10%. Um, why? Um, well, there was a belief uh, after 9-11 that the U.S. Uh, wanted to become more independent in terms of its energy source. So there was a belief that uh, using uh, food for fuel would reduce our dependence on foreign sources of energy. And there was also a belief that... Uh, this was good for the environment. So I think it was uh, sold uh, for those reasons and, and others. And it was the government that said, that pushed this. It wasn't an industry. It was, it was a government mandate from Washington, right? Well, it was the industry. It was big corn that was basically behind it. Okay. Uh, Michael Marshall, what's been the impact on dairy and agriculture industry of this Push to put corn in gas tanks. Uh, it's it's been devastating. It, if you're feeding livestock and you're producing food for uh, human consumption, it, this policy has been absolutely devastating. Over the past seven years, uh, we've probably lost about 25% of the family dairy farms in the state of California, and and a big contributor to that has been the cost of corn that you want to feed your cattle. And we'll get into some of those different drivers for the cost of corn. We'll get into some of that later. But you think that corn ought to be fed to animals and not put into fuel? I think uh, corn should be used for food rather than for fuel. Uh, Okay. Neil Curler, you think that corn is cleaner than than gasoline and and, and, uh, fossil fuels, and that's a big issue for climate change. Absolutely. I mean, I I firmly believe that the... uh, Displacement of 10% of our gasoline in the United States with ethanol has been a profoundly positive impact in reducing our petroleum dependence. In fact, it's been the only meaningful thing we've done in this country to reduce our very dangerous dependence on petroleum. Um, it has uh, been supported by the Renewable Fuel Standard, which I'm sure we'll be discussing as well, which we think has been the most effective policy, both from an energy and environmental standpoint, uh, to both address uh, the, the issue of the petroleum monopoly 
and to provide significant environmental benefits. Well, let's get at this whether uh, this key issue of whether gasoline blended with uh, with corn is is cleaner. Colin Carter, the life cycle analysis, if, if you include uh, the land use, the water, the petroleum fertilizer, all of that, how does corn and oil come out? Um, I think uh, corn loses. Uh, in fact, there was a study done by the National Academy of Sciences in 2011 that pointed out uh, initially when EPA did the numbers they found that uh, ethanol from corn created more greenhouse gases than uh, gasoline did. Um, the EPA uh, sharpened their pencil and brought that number uh, closer to where it was palatable. But uh, there's a number of studies. And it's interesting because uh, the European Union, in many respects, is far ahead of the United States when it comes to environmental policy. And just this past year, the European Union has done a U-turn when it comes to the uh, belief that uh, ethanol or biodiesel is good for the environment. And once they've accounted for the, the land use uh, effects that you mentioned, increased production of soybeans and corn in Brazil and Argentina and China and other parts of the world, uh, and, and palm oil in Malaysia and Indonesia, uh, the Europeans are now backing away. They've reduced their uh, mandate on uh, on uh, biofuels from uh, 10% from crop sources to 5%. So I think we should follow the Europeans' lead. And just to clarify that, so when <clears throat> corn prices go up, uh, people switch to other types of inputs, soybean, et cetera, and that's what you're talking about? Well, uh, there's, you know, a number of factors here. When corn prices go up... Uh, because we're shifting corn to fuel, taking it out of the food supply, um, that increases corn production in other parts of the world. Uh, for example, Brazil has doubled their corn exports just in the last four or five years. At the same time, uh, it draws up prices of other uh, commodities because it's competing for the same land, such as soybeans and other commodities. Uh, Neil Curler, is corn cleaner than gasoline? Uh, corn is definitely cleaner than gasoline, very significantly, and uh, the most recent studies are all showing that on a direct, full life cycle basis, depending on how you produce it, the ethanol we produce in California happens to be some of the cleanest, but the range is 40 to 60% cleaner than gasoline on a full life cycle basis on a carbon accounting. Uh, even with indirect land use, which is pretty hypothetical science, uh, it is a 35 recent study by the DOE and Purdue scientists concluded it was 35% cleaner. So uh, when we need to get every increment of carbon reduction we can from fuels, and certainly in California with fuels being 60% of the CO2 emissions, uh, if we can get that kind of reduction, then that's what we need to be doing. The, the European community uh, is in the process of reevaluating. Uh, they have not come to any, any final conclusions, and they actually have been taking a fresh look at the science and is showing a much larger benefit from biofuels as well. I'd like to get at the, the cost driver question. We actually posted on our, on our Facebook page a, a graphic that shows uh, the factors behind increases in, in food costs. Part of it is ethanol policy. The U.S. government saying you got to produce this much. Uh, Michael Marshall, it's also global demand is growing uh, from China and other places. There's weather, there's disease, there's government tariffs uh, restricting it. So pinning the rising fuel costs only on corn ethanol that could be a distortion or unfair. There's, there's lots of factors driving up food prices is what, this, what some people would say. <clears throat> well, um, the most significant driver is ethanol policy in the United States. Whether you're, whether you're somebody living on subsistence in Guatemala, Nicaragua, or whether you're somebody in Egypt who doesn't have enough to eat, uh, because we displace so much of the food going into fuel, it's creating turmoil across the planet, and that has to stop. It really has to stop. Uh, Neil Curler, we asked a couple of large oil companies to participate in this program, and they declined because they said, look, we want to move, people want to get away, even the big oil companies want to get away from this food versus fuel fight, which is a losing battle. Wouldn't you, would you agree that it's better to get uh, 
biomass ethanol products from things that don't compete with animal and, and human food? I, I think it's additive. I think we, there is so much misinformation because it is a false dichotomy and a false choice. First of all, the, the corn that we use to produce ethanol is not human food. It's feed. The small portion, less than 10%, that is actual food is sugar, corn sugar, that goes into soft drinks and other junk foods that arguably should come out of the food stream. Uh, so it is really not human food. It is feed. Since ethanol came around in 2005, or the renewable fuel standard, what we have seen is an incredibly and dramatic increase in the productivity of farmers responding to new markets and, uh, and some higher prices. Uh, but So this notion that we're diverting corn is actually completely false because what we've seen since 2005 is that there's actually more corn available for non-ethanol uses than there was before 2005. Uh, and we now are seeing a bumper crop. We're seeing prices that are back down to levels where farmers are still able to cover their cost of production, uh, but are very reasonable prices for all end users of corn. So we've seen the market uh, calibrate itself. We've seen farmers don't ever underestimate the productivity of the American farmer. They have responded uh, in kind by growing, since 1980, uh, virtually twice as much corn on the same amount of land. Colin Carter, how about that? It's not a lot of the corn that goes in gas tanks is not suitable for, for human consumption. It's, it's a false dichotomy. Okay, I'll come back to that. But, but first, let me uh, respond to Neil's uh, comment. Um, yes, the price of corn is back down to $5 a bushel. But before the renewable fuel standard, it was $2.50 a bushel. So it's still double. It reached a peak of $8 a bushel. The reason it's back to $5 a bushel is because of Brazil and Argentina plowing up pasture land or cutting down forests to, to grow corn. So that's the whole idea behind the indirect land use calculation. This is spurred on increased production in other countries, which releases greenhouse gases. So that's why the price is back down. In terms of this not being a food, um, I have to disagree. Uh, the number one input in American agriculture is feed grains. Uh, the U.S. is the largest producer in the world of corn. Uh, the largest exporter. Uh, there are studies by the International Monetary Fund, the FAO, the OECD, that show very consistently that uh, the U.S. ethanol policy has driven up food prices by 20 to 30 percent because this feed uh, is used for the production of uh, eggs, um, pork, uh, dairy products, and so on. Neil Carter? Yeah, just to respond to that, the uh, food inflation uh, before, uh, since the renewable fuel standard in 2005 has been less than 3% globally. Uh, that is less than food inflation was in the 5, 10 years before 2005. So I think the facts don't really support the notion that's raised the food price. I also need to make sure people understand that as ethanol producers, and this is why it's this false choice, we are fuel and feed producers. So, yes, 40% of the corn grown in the United States goes through our biorefineries. Fully one-third of it comes back out as a much better feed. Cows weren't actually uh, genetically programmed to eat corn. Uh, they eat corn because it's a, a very cheap commodity. We take that corn, we take the feed value, which is the protein, the minerals, and the fat, and in our fermentation process, we concentrate that into a much more valuable feed than the raw corn, and that's why we then sell that feed to Michael's members. Actually, virtually every dairy farm in California uh, consumes our products, whether it be wet distiller's grain that we produce in California, dry distiller's grains, other co-products. So we're very synergistic. We, we built our plants next to dairies for that very reason. And one other quick comment. Uh, if, yes, in 2005, corn was $2.02. 50 a bushel in that range, which was fully two to three dollars less than the, the cost to produce it. And we as taxpayers made up the difference to the tune of eight billion dollars. We're no longer paying that out. There was a period of time when ethanol was getting subsidized, never to the tune of eight billion dollars. Those subsidies expired. The market had established itself where ethanol was there. We're no longer paying car of corn farmers to, uh, you know, subsidize them to make up the difference, nor are we paying, um, ethanol producers, yet we continue to subsidize to the tune of billions and billions of dollars of direct and indirect to the petroleum industry, and that should stop. But, Neil, 
Um, Colin Carter. Those subsidies uh, simply were capitalized into the price of land. We didn't have to pay those subsidies. Brazil doesn't pay those subsidies. Argentina doesn't pay those subsidies. And they've exp- expanded their corn production. So uh, you're saying $2.50 is not enough. They need subsidies. Uh, the subsidies resulted from special interest groups going to Washington, D.C., the same as the RFS. They kept going to D.C. every year uh, for the last 15 years. And finally, after 9-11 and the spike in the price of oil, they hit the jackpot. They, it's special think, interest groups. But you're, big corn. Big corn uh, got a got a sweetheart deal on this. Uh, Michael Marsh, let's get you in on this. Yeah, I, just just a little visual. A semi tractor trailer that that is sitting on the road in, in California can be 80 feet long, um, and if you fill it, uh, you'll have about 50,000 pounds of corn that you can put in into that uh, into that semi. Now, if you were to if you were to go out on I-80 and, and have semi after semi, nose to tail, nose to tail, nose to tail, and you stretched them out, that would extend from San Francisco past Reno, Nevada on I-80, and that's one day's use of corn ethanol in the United States today. To suggest that it hasn't had an impact on food prices is absurd. Uh, it really is. And when, and when you talk about the feed uh, aspect of it, that's true. We do, we do uh, pro, uh, use the distiller's grains. Mm-hmm. But that's not the reason we use corn. We use corn not for the protein, not for the stuff you leave in it. We want it for the energy that you want it for, too. So we're competing with you for the energy that's coming out of that corn kernel. But how about Neil Curler's previous point that cows didn't uh, were intended to, to feed on corn? If you read Michael Pollan's book, Omnivore Dilemmas, he talks about how humans are like walking corn chips and and. A lot of places, there's a premium for grass-fed beef. Some consumers prefer grass-fed beef based on some presumption that it's healthier, better, et cetera, that that's more natural to a ruminant diet. Yeah, you know, and that's a choice. You know, I'm not a geneticist, uh, so I really don't know. Maybe Neil is, but I'm I'm not. Um, So I I really don't know whether or not that would be normal or not. But I think that consumers should have a choice. If you want... Uh, uh, grass or milk, uh, I mean, excuse me, grass-fed beef or, or milk coming from uh, organic systems, that's that's wonderful. You have a choice here in the United States. But if let's just think about it. If you were to perhaps consider that if you were to immediately turn the whole United States agricultural system in an organic system, and you could only feed 175 million people with that organic system, who's going to be the one that picks and chooses who eats and who doesn't? I, I think you need both. Yeah, well, some people might challenge the math there in terms of how productive organics is, et cetera. Uh, we, I want to pick up on, on subsidies, the mention of fossil fuel subsidies and corn subsidies, et cetera. Uh, you know, there's also dairy subsidies, right? So everybody gets subsidized. They just let it, everyone likes to point to some other yeah. industry subsidy. Um, but I want to ask Colin Carter, the, the doing away with some of the corn ethanol sub- sub- subsidies, was that a good thing? It was, it was a start, yeah, with the, uh, with the tax credit that was uh, eliminated. But there's still a uh, tax credit for biodiesel. And is that something you think should be done away with? Oh, absolutely. Then how are we going to, if there's a real carbon problem, carbon challenge, how is the U.S. going to move it toward lower carbon fuels? What's the path there? Do you agree that climate change is real and serious and urgent? And then what's the path to low carbon fuels, Colin Carter? I agree the climate change is a real issue, but I also firmly believe, having read numerous uh, published scientific studies, that corn is not a low-carbon fuel, and biodiesel is even worse. It's not a low-carbon fuel. So mm-hmm. that is not the answer. It's actually making the situation worse. Neil Curler? All I can point to is probably the, uh, the most stringent carbon standard in the world, which is California's right here, low-carbon fuel standard, that requires a 10% reduction in carbon intensity between now and 2020. And uh, they have scored all fuels, biodiesel, ethanol, natural gas, gasoline. Um, our ethanol has a score that is 20%, even with the indirect land use. It should be, in our view, closer to 50%, but in California, it's 20%. Uh, and 80% of the compliance under the low-carbon fuel standard to date has been met with ethanol. And California 
I've been in this business for almost 30 years now in California. They've never been a big friend of corn ethanol because that was the Midwest. Now, we're doing it out here. They're gaining a little more appreciation for the, the economic, environmental, and energy security benefits. Um, but they have very good science, and they have determined that ethanol not only is a low-carbon fuel, but today is meeting 80% of those requirements. Now, that standard is great, and it's going to lead to electricity, more natural gas, higher gas mileage. So, I mean, you know, we do not believe that ethanol is the end-all. We believe that it's the most immediate, viable opportunity we have today, and it's been providing significant benefits on energy, environment, energy security today, tomorrow, our plants will be using new feedstocks, producing lower carbon fuels, but we have done an amazing thing as an ethanol industry in this country to achieve the results we have. If you're just joining us on the radio, our guest today, that's Neil Kohler, Neil Kohler, CEO of Pacific Ethanol. Our other guests are Colin Carter, Professor of Agricultural Economics at UC Davis, and Michael Marsh, CEO of Western United Dairymen. I'm Greg Dalton. Greg, uh, let me ask Neil Colin a question. Carter, sure. Uh, Neil, isn't it true that, that most of the ethanol plants in the United States are exempt from the EPA's uh, 20% required reduction? Uh, they're not. They grandfathered in. They, they grandfathered in because they determined they, in fact, even with this hypothetical indirect land use, that they achieved that. Any new ethanol plant, corn ethanol plant or other ethanol plant built, will have to achieve a 50% reduction. And just last week, there was an announcement that a corn ethanol plant is being going to be built uh, if that meets the 50% reduction. They got that approval from but the EPA. My question is, if there's 200-plus plants in the U.S., whatever the number is, uh, why do they have to be grandfathered in if, if uh, in fact, this is a low-carbon fuel? They, when you say grandfathered in, it was determined through science, objective science, that they met the requirement and that they qualified as a low-carbon fuel under the EPA's renewable fuel standard. Well, EPA the, changed their number. Their, well, the, and the standard for new plants is even higher, and that's good, just like the renewable fuel standard requires uh, lower carbon fuels. The California low carbon fuel standard requires improvements. And that's, you know, what we've seen in ethanol in just since uh, 2001, we've seen a 30% reduction in energy, a 40% reduction in water use, uh, and so it's a, a 6% increase in yields. So it's getting more efficient, where I think we all appreciate the fact from a, the hydrocarbon perspective, as we start squeeze that proverbial blood out of the turnip in, in, the, in, the, in the oil sands and tar sands and the, and the shale, is that incrementally it's getting worse from an environmental perspective. I have a question about uh, the ethanol plants. Uh, the Koch brothers, Koch Industries, are buying up ethanol plants. Uh, if this is – what's going on there? Is that because there's a big market for there, uh, Colin Carter? I, I don't know. Perhaps Neil does. Uh, because they, they're one of the biggest oil companies yeah. in the country, and they're buying ethanol plants. Right. Uh, our issue has been market access. They, you know, that's why we need a renewable fuel standard. The economics of ethanol are incredibly compelling. But oil companies, and I don't fault them, they have a monopoly on the petroleum system, on the fuel system, and they don't want a competitor. Those that uh, see the opportunity that this is not going to go away and that the economics are so compelling are starting to buy into it. So two of the top five ethanol companies today, Valero and Coke, are oil companies. So we are seeing a transition to where, you know, they're not stupid. They're not going to stand by and not participate. They are starting to participate. There's something called the open fuel standard, which would provide choice. Uh, a lot of uh, Colin Carter in Canada, where you're from, uh, consumers have a choice at the pump, different types of blends of fuels. In Brazil, uh, consumers at, at the pump can choose gasoline or some blend of ethanol. I'd like to hear your thoughts on consumer choice for fuels, just like people have increasingly for, for milk that they put on their breakfast mm -hmm. uh, cereal. We'll get to Mike Marshall yeah. in a minute. Yeah. Absolutely. In Brazil, uh, a lot of motors have a little card in their vehicle, and they look at the price of ethanol relative to gasoline relative to a blend, decide what to put in their vehicle depending on the relative prices. In Canada, you can pull into a service station at one pump. You can buy 0% ethanol, gasoline, 5% ethanol, 10% ethanol. Uh, and you can make a choice depending on the price. In the United States, ironically, we have no choice. We pull into the pump. It's 10%. It's 10% or 10%. You can choose. So you get 10%. As a result, uh, because ethanol 
has lower energy content than gasoline. It's 33% less energy. Uh, the, cons- the motorist in the United States uh, is paying about 10 cents a gallon additional beyond what they would pay for gasoline because this inferior fuel is being blended into the finished uh, gasoline and the price is not lowered to reflect the fact that effectively gasoline is being cut with ethanol. So you give consumers a choice, that wouldn't happen. If you have no choice, this is what happens. Neil Curler, would you like to see American consumers have choice like those in Brazil and Canada at the, at the pump? Absolutely. That, that is the key, is consumer choice. And they will choose ethanol. They will choose renewable fuels. Uh, I need to address the, the fact about the de- energy density. The one good thing about gasoline, oil, you know, diesel, is that after all that compression over you know, millions of years of dinosaur bones and plants, it is a very dense fuel. So uh, ethanol for a renewable fuel grown every season um, is actually pretty dense itself, uh, but it does have, as, as Colin correctly pointed out, 30% less BTUs per unit volume. But what it has, which makes it a superior fuel, is an octane rating of 115. It's a racing fuel. NASCAR drivers are using 15% ethanol in their fuel. The car companies, to meet the 55 miles per gallon standards, are saying to us, we need your ethanol because we need not 10% blends, not 15% blends, but 30% blends so that we can get an octane, higher compression ratio engine where you more than offset that energy loss because it is a superior fuel from a combustion characteristic, which is also what makes it a cleaner fuel. You have less tailpipe emissions because you're burning more of the carbon with ethanol. And that, that is the future, and that's what the renewable fuel standard is supporting, is higher levels of ethanol and other biofuels so that we can actually offset entirely and more that la- loss of energy density so you're getting significantly better gas mileage with ethanol. Colin Carter, it's true. The car companies like to tout their flex fuel cars as a path that they're doing to reduce the carbon intensity to make their cars cleaner. Yeah, that's that's fine. And uh, I think it's what Neil said is correct, although, you know, those engines are going to be more expensive. Uh, but the main issue is you have to give consumers a choice and let them decide. And then the market prices will reflect the true value of the product. Uh, in the United States, the consumers do not have a choice, so uh, blended gasoline is overpriced relative to its energy content. We're talking about corn, cars, and cows at Climate One. Colin Car- Carter is a professor of agricultural economics at UC Davis. We also have Neil Curler, CEO of Pacific Ethanol, and Michael Marsh, CEO of Western United Dairymen. Uh, let's get Michael Marsh in on this a little bit, but first ask Neil Curler, do American dairy farmers produce too much milk? Well, uh, that's a, a question that's, that's hard to answer. In our house, we drink a fair amount of milk, but it's all organic milk, uh, and I think uh, milk is good. I think that the, uh, the issue with uh, milk production is supply and demand, just like it's been with ethanol. I mean, yes, we've had mandates. Yes, we've had subsidies, but we've had a lot of years where we've overproduced ethanol, and consequently, we've made no money. And, uh, you know, I've read things that Michael wrote back in 2005, long before ethanol was a factor, where he was bemoaning the fact that dairy farmers weren't making money. And it's always been about supply and demand and global markets. And uh, the issue for the dairy farmer is not the price of the feed and the ethanol mandates. It is a supply-demand, like it is for any commodity, and that needs to be addressed. The Farm Bill is trying to address pricing. Uh, the dairy industry itself is trying to to address supply and demand. It's not a free market. Their price is set by the government, uh, and there's lots of issues in how that is done and doesn't fully incorporate all the costs. So, you know, I'm not an expert on that, but just like any commodity, I would say that it boils down to supply and demand. And right now, yes, the U.S. dairy industry probably produces a bit too much milk. Michael Marsh? Well, that doesn't really agree with the facts, but uh, uh, I'd like to stay on your energy policy for just a moment. I'll jump back over to Neil's comment. There are opportunities here uh, for using renewable energy, and we've tried it on our dairy farms in the state of California and putting methane digesters, taking waste, manure that's there, taking that methane that's going to exist, converting that methane to run either in a generator or perhaps putting in a natural gas pipeline. Actually, we had a project with one of our farmers down in Tulare in Visalia area, 
that uh, after we I put the first put the uh, uh, methane digester, so he's able to to run his dairy on the on the energy uh, created uh, by that methane digester. We he had some extra gas left over, so what we did was we got another grant that we converted some uh, milk trucks to run on biofuel, biogas that he's producing on the farm. And now twice a day he's running up the road from uh, by, uh, by by Celliaria to Hillmar Cheese. Uh, with uh, uh, with uh, a fuel that uh, he's producing right on the farm, so there are opportunities yes. here, and and, may, and this is the this is the the challenge I think is that we don't necessarily need to convert food, animal food, human food to fuel. Instead, let's find those opportunities where it's a win 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 for everyone. Things now, that, yeah, waste of fuel, great yeah. opportunity. Okay, and and, 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 and I, I concur with that. Now, with regard to to milk supply, I, actually that that is not correct. We we're not oversupplying milk. We don't have an oversupply of milk. Um, is demand falling for uh, liquid no, milk? Well, for fluid milk, yes. Uh, but at the same time, you have a phenomenal growth in demand globally for all kinds of different dairy products. Um, you see it uh, in, in Southeast Asia, a considerable amount of demand growth. You see it in the Middle East, a considerable <clears throat> amount of uh, demand growth. And, of course, today India can't provide as much milk as the people in India want. So the United States is starting to become more of an exporter of different dairy products. And, and I think that globally, uh, the global marketplace is going to be the new opportunity for the U.S. dairy industry, with, without a doubt. Uh, and that's where inc- incremental demand growth has been. Thinking about the carbon footprint of shipping refrigerated milk to India, I'm just trying to think <laughs> about uh, that. Uh, you know, so you touched on it earlier. Uh, methane from cows is a big uh, source of, of carbon pollution, like more methane. It's, yeah. it's, it's a big greenhouse gas problem. You know, and I, I think that's that's a good point. In 1944, in the United States, there were 25.4 million dairy cows. Of course, at that time, we were feeding the allies in, in Europe. Um, we, were, we had war on two fronts. Uh, so we, we had 25.4 million dairy cows, and they produced about 120 billion pounds of milk. Today, because of use of genetics and corn for, uh, for feed, uh, we've been able to reduce that number of dairy cows from 25.4 million to 9.2 million. We've actually become more efficient, reduced our carbon footprint here in the United States. And at the same time, we've, we've got 9.2 million cows versus 25.4 million. We're producing almost twice the amount of milk. Of course, U.S. population is yeah. double. Sure. No, the dairy industry has done a phenomenal job at being more efficient. And the dairy industry, particularly in California, where our plants are, are our partners. There are customers for the feed. And I think together, whether it's diversifying into some of these new technologies, corn is a great base. We're working on the fiber in our corn. We've turned waste wine into ethanol. Fancy that in California with all this fine wine. Sometimes it ends up as a waste product, and we convert that to ethanol. So the industry is the, the platform. It's not like corn ethanol is going to give way to some, you know, now it's obsolete and it's all new industry. It's our industry that's innovating, driven by renewable fuel standards and low-carbon fuel standards to diversify into new technologies and, and new raw materials. But some people would say sugar is a lot better. Cane sugar, the Brazil path, is a lot better than corn, that that's a better path. And, uh, Neil Curler, I'd like to get your response to that, that isn't sugar a better – doesn't compete as much with food because they can use the, the waste products for sugar. Isn't sugar a better path for athletes? Uh, it's, it's really no different than corn in that, you know, we take the, the starch in corn, the energy, and convert it into ethanol and concentrate all the feed value. Uh, in the case of sugar cane, they're squeezing the sugar, which goes into sugar markets worldwide, and they're using the molasses and the sugar, you know, the residual for ethanol. So it's kind of similar in that both are feed, food, and fuel. And we, we need to be able to do all these things. If we can't grow feed, fuel, fiber, uh, you know, we're, we're out of luck long term. So uh, it is a very efficient way to, uh, give, given the climate and the tropics, to convert uh, sugar cane into ethanol. Some of it gets brought into the United States, but uh, given transportation, given the efficiency of, of corn farming in the United States and that sugar cane doesn't grow so well, sugar cane is great in Brazil. Corn is great in the United States. And how about cellulosic? There's been a lot of attention and, and hype about, about cellulosic, advanced <clears throat> biofuels, uh, switchgrass, camelina, jatropha, all these sorts of things. The U.S. Navy has been very keen on, on some of those fuels, yet they've been disappointing so far. And one of the reasons that corn is the, the horse many people are riding is because those other opportunities, alternatives, have not materialized, Neil Curler. Well, there have been challenges. Uh, I think the goals that were set by the renewable, uh, renewable fuel standard were stretch goals uh, because when the law was passed, there was no commercial cellulosic ethanol being produced. This was so, a national law that said you've got to produce this yes. huge amount, and the market hasn't delivered. 
Correct. And the EPA has the discretion to change that, which they're doing. They've done it for the last two years. They'll do it again. Uh, the important thing is that we need to have that goal out there so that we can attract the capital investment. A lot of the political uncertainty has put a chill into the investment community to make those investments. It is more expensive to produce cellulosic ethanol. It does require more capital than corn ethanol. That's why we need the renewable fuel standard to say there will be a market for these products. Uh, Ineos in Florida, uh, Keor in Mississippi, uh, Poet in, uh, in Iowa, and uh, Abengoa in Kansas, all are either producing cellulose ethanol today or have construction projects that will complete next year. So it's, uh, it's later than we wanted as an industry. We as corn ethanol producers have our own initiatives to uh, convert uh, cellulose to ethanol. We're taking the fiber fraction in the corn. Uh, by the end of this year, we will be producing some advanced biofuel uh, through that mechanism. Um, so it's it's happening. It, you're right. It's been slower than anticipated. Um, but it is, in terms of the growth of biofuels, that really is the future. And some of those companies you mentioned, large oil companies are invested in those. I'd like to ask Colin Carter where the large oil companies are in terms of this, whether they seem to be uh, fighting this corn mandate to want to uh, change it, though there's a little bit of a split. Shell and BP have said, well, we kind of like it the way it is. Other oil companies say we, we need to change or dump the law. So let's talk about where they are uh, in all this. Maybe yeah, we're outside well, right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. Um, well, for them, it's a competing fuel. And, uh, you know, I don't know the details of their investment in cellulosic. But let me say this. Uh, unless these targets are changed that Neil was referring to, we are going to see a tremendous collateral damage in the next three or four years because of the RFS. Mm-hmm. You know, the EPA forecast um, that we would use a billion gallons of cellulosic this year, and uh, the available supply is like 20,000 gallons. I mean, they are off by a factor of 99.9%. Neil's right, they've responded, but only because the courts told them they had to. There was a a D.C. Court of Appeal ruling in January uh, that said to the EPA, um, well, let me get this straight. You're telling uh, the obligated parties, the refiners, that they have to buy a fuel that doesn't exist? In other words, they're being told they had to buy, uh, I think it was 8 million gallons last year. And there was 20,000 gallons. So you're being told to buy fuel that doesn't exist. And if you don't buy it, I'm going to fine you. So it was the courts who came down on EPA. That's why they're finally responding. Mm-hmm. Neil Curler? Uh, the industry is responding. The oil companies are responding. The EPA has full discretion to recalibrate the numbers, and that's exactly what they're doing. In the meantime, uh, the ethanol that we produce from corn is getting more and more efficient. It is reducing the cost of gasoline. It is providing significant environmental benefits uh, and energy security benefits and building the foundation for these new technologies. I want to switch to the climate impacts. In 2012, Mm -hmm. there was some devastating droughts, impacted corn production, a lot Mm -hmm. of the Midwest, uh, impacted corn prices. As we look at rising temperatures and floods, uh, how is that going to impact the corn industry and all these industries when we think about volatile weather that's coming our way? Certainly it's yeah. got to be hitting dairy, Michael Marshall. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, uh, water availability, all those things are tied, uh, tied together. And it is something that we as a, as a nation, as a, as a planet have to work on together. Uh, and we do need to find solutions that don't raise the price of gasoline, like ethanol, putting ethanol into gasoline, that don't take, uh, you know, food away from people. These solutions have to make sense. But the premise in there is that that there's no cost to the status quo. And there are tremendous costs to the status quo to do business as usual uh, where there's all these externalities. Carbon pollution is free. We, the, the atmosphere is an is a, is a unpriced sewer. So there, there is a cost to, to doing things now. And it's hard to think of a solution that doesn't mean a cost increase for someone. Gasoline, food, carbon, coal. Yes. Price structures have to change on someone. Yeah, that, that's a good point because one of the challenges we had with methane digesters turning waste into, into energy uh, was the price of natural gas. Uh, it's plentiful, available. Cheap. Uh, it's undercutting it, everything. It, absolutely, and, and that is a challenge in addition to trying to get the plants uh, uh, permitted in the state with the air board and the water board here in the state. Climate change is occurring. I, 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 Do you remember I, I kind of chuckle sometimes yeah. when, I, when, I, when I hear people say that it isn't. Uh, but I don't know how you can uh, how you can uh, 
look around and say, say that it's not. Do dairy farmers, you, small dairy farmers in the Central Valley of California, they say, well, we've seen weather. My, remember my grandfather would live through the Dust Bowl or whatever. Do they see climate change as happening or they see it as natural variability that so, some do and some don't. Caused. Yeah, some, some do and some don't. And, uh, and, uh, some of those, as, as I mentioned, I think we're progressive in thinking, you know, I can do something better. And, and that's why they, they applied to, to try to put in the methane di- digesters on the farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a very challenging process in California. Now, if I'm in Oregon or Washington State, it's, it's easy to put them on and, and generate power or, or, or generate gas. Yeah. Uh, but it's very hard to do here. They don't have as, bad air pollution, as many cars in those states. Colin Carter, the, the climate impacts is going to affect all of these these biomass, corn, sugar, et cetera. Uh, it's going to be, it's going to hit the prices of all those things. That's right. I think you raise a good point, Greg. And, you know, clearly agriculture is the canary in the gold mine when it comes to climate change. It's going to hit the agricultural industry first. And when you uh, roll the clock forward, uh, by 2050, we expect 9 billion people on this planet which, uh, depending on which estimate you look at, could require increased food production in the order of 50%. Um, so that's why the RFS is making it worse, because it's taking food the out of the system. renewable fuel standard. Mm-hmm. The renewable fuel standard is making it worse. It's taking uh, food out of the system when, in fact, we need more food. And going forward, that's even more true. Hence, when I say if these targets aren't changed, we have a train wreck. Uh, if they're not changed in two or three years' time, if we come back here, We'll sit here and talk about using 80 or 90 percent of our soybeans for biodiesel and, you know, 40 plus percent of our corn. Um, Neil mentioned the, the, uh, the sugar cane use, uh, for ethanol. And that's, you know, just another, uh, example of the differences between corn and sugar cane. I don't have a big problem with sugar cane because, uh, with corn it takes almost a gallon of fossil fuel to produce a gallon of ethanol. With sugar cane you get eight to one. And so, so there's less petroleum that goes into sugar production than corn production. Ethanol from sugar. So uh, the U.S. Uh, policy treats uh, ethanol from sugar as an advanced biofuel. So something really odd, Neil alluded to this, uh, we're uh, shipping uh, ethanol from corn to Brazil, and when that ship goes down, it passes a ship coming north loaded with ethanol from sugar. Uh, so what's, what's the climate impact of that? Uh, we call that cross-hauling. I think that's a very inefficient uh, way to, to manage our resources, and it illustrates um, that we do have a big problem with the renewable fuel standard. Neil Curler? I'd like to say that uh, a lot of these arguments against ethanol are very Orwellian, because when you really look at the simple facts of the matter, the opposite is true. Price of gasoline. I sell ethanol for a dollar a gallon less than the wholesale cost of gasoline. I can buy E85 in Sacramento, one of the few stations that offers it, at that dollar a gallon less than gasoline. It's displacing the incremental barrel of oil that is a lot more expensive than the average cost of gasoline. So it's to argue will, that... Will that gallon of ethanol take you not as far because there's less energy in, the, in a gallon? But in an engine that is not optimized, you'll see a small decrease at 10%. Uh, in many cars that have oxygen sensors that are already calibrating for the, the higher value of the, the energy, the efficiency, it's making up for that. So uh, the, the energy use, it's, it's just not true. I produce ethanol. I know how much energy it takes. For every unit in, I get more than between two and three out. Uh, and so it is, and that is why it has a carbon score because that's then taking the the growing of the corn, which becomes so much more efficient, just as the dairiness has become more efficient. We're using uh, less fertilizer today than we did in 1980 to grow twice as much corn. So I mean, all of our processes are becoming more efficient. Uh, and and it it so it's and, and from the energy security standpoint, I mean, how can it not be helping? Where uh, people say, well, it doesn't help energy security. Well, we're you know we, we displaced. Almost 500 million barrels of oil, which is the equivalent of what we bring from Saudi Arabia through the use of domestically produced renewable fuels in the United States. And last time I looked, uh, there weren't a bunch of tanks surrounding uh, our cornfields in the in California and the Midwest to protect that resource. And so there's we haven't really touched on the military aspects, but that's uh, you know that's critical as well as the economic and climate. Greg, can I just address sure. those facts on energy independence? Because I think it is important we stick to the facts, Neil. And it's, it's very straightforward. Anybody can look it up. Uh, 
since 2007, when they ramped up the uh, renewable fuel standard, uh, U.S. imports of crude oil have dropped about 25%, about 2.5 million barrels a day, drop in imports. So uh, some of Neil's friends say, well, that's because of ethanol. Well, I don't think so, because when you look at a U.S. production of oil, it's up 2.3 million barrels a day. So imports are down 2.5. Domestic production is up 2.3. And consumption of gasoline is down about 600,000 barrels a day. So, uh, yes, we're no, not as reliant on imports as we used to be. The number's gone from 60, 65 to 40%. But it's not because of ethanol. It's because of increased domestic production and decreased consumption of gasoline. It absolutely is. Seven percent of it is related to ethanol, and that's the 30 percent of the fossil energy. What, Colin, you're not including in, in that number is the imports of gasoline. And that's what we've really reduced, and ethanol's had a big part of that because that's what we are displacing is the gasoline. As it relates to, you know, it's great that we found all this wonderful tar sands and shale, but from a climate perspective, and climate change being the most pressing issue of our age and future ages, we need to leave that carbon in the ground. And that's where efficiency, electrical vehicles, more ethanol, more biofuels has an incredibly critical role to play. Neil Curler, CEO of Pacific Ethanol, our other guests today at Climate One are Colin Carter, Professor of Agricultural Economics at UC Davis, and Michael Marsh, CEO of Western United Dairymen. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Yes, <clears throat> thank you very much. Uh, I got a question that I, I, I don't certainly don't have an answer to, and that is, is ethanol in our water supply? And I, my research indicates I can't find anybody that ever checks our water supply for ethanol, and ethanol is a carcinogen, and uh, nobody ever checks. So is that something that uh, maybe our attorney general ought to chat with the president about? Uh, is the idea that it's somehow leaking from gas stations into water supply? Is that what you're saying? I don't know that, and nobody knows that because nobody ever checks. Neil Curler? I, I can address that. Um, ethanol is being checked. It's, uh, you know, clearly the, the water regulators are checking water for, for all compounds. Uh, ethanol is in the gasoline here in California because it replaced MTBE, which was, in fact, in the water stream and was not breaking down and staying there and was uh, causing very serious toxicity issues in our water supply. Um, ethanol, while it can, in fact, leak, is highly biodegradable. It breaks down almost immediately in the environment. And study, because there have been plenty in the oil industry that have tried to, to hang that on the, the shoulders of the ethanol industry, and it hasn't stuck because there's absolutely uh, no credibility to the issue that, that ethanol is a water quality problem. Quite to the contrary. That's why uh, ethanol needs to displace more gasoline, which clearly is a threat to our environment and our water supply. Let's have our next audience question. Thank you so much uh, for your talk. I'm all for alternative energy. Um, but I'm very concerned with the, the huge meat and dairy uh, industries on the planet and in our country. Um, they produce, I don't know if it's in the feces, but so, so much methane gas. And that's a huge factor, I believe, a major factor of global warming. How many... More percentages um, worse is methane gas than carbon dioxide. I hear it's Michael quite Marsh, a bit. It's, it's, quite, it's, it's a lot more potent than carbon yeah, dioxide. It, it's 21 times, and, and of course, uh, 21 times more potent uh, than carbon dioxide as far as a greenhouse gas. Now, now of course, that was, goes back to my point. Uh, what well, you've seen in the United States is this tremendous push towards efficiency that has actually brought the carbon footprint down here. There was a United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization report a number of years ago that has now been debunked uh, generally, but it indicated that perhaps 18% of global uh, 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 of carbon emissions in, 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 the, in the world uh, were coming from livestock ops, operations. But of course, if you if you have a livestock operations or uh, a livestock operation or a dairy, uh, say in uh, well in a different country where you're getting a thousand pounds of milk out of a dairy cow in a, in a single year versus thirty thousand pounds of milk out of a dairy cow in a single year, that efficiency reduces that carbon footprint significantly from uh, that livestock operation, and that's what we've seen uh, not just in the U.S. dairy industry but also in the U.S. poultry industry, U.S. beef industry. Uh, so uh, we're being efficient is not a bad thing. 
sometimes being efficient means factory farms at, at huge scale that have tremendous <clears throat> amount of, of effluent and, and some people are really concerned. And are you saying that they're more carbon efficient as well, factory farms? Yeah, I, I've never seen one. So I, I really couldn't address that. I, I've never seen. So dairy that. doesn't operate on the same factory farms as the meat meat operations. Is that what you're saying? I don't think meat does either. Uh, I, I I just have never seen that type of operation. Meat doesn't have factory farms. No, I've never seen that Any, anywhere. Harris Ranch. I, I don't see a factory there. I well, see a feedlot. Uh, okay. It's, all right. So it's it's a very large scale agricultural operation where there's thousands and thousands of cows produced producing meat or dairy. Mm-hmm. And they, and they are. And, and of course, they, that drives efficiency. But in, in our organization, we have dairies that are, have 60 cows. We have dairies that have 6,000 cows. Um, it, some are organic, some are conventional. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that due to the productivity gains that you've got there, your carbon footprint is diminished. Okay. Let's have our next audience question. It's a, it's a little bit of a different direction uh, and maybe a context for it. Uh, it. I guess the question would be, is there a responsibility that the ethanol be safe? And my context for that is I'm uh, Jerry Desmond, Director of Government Relations for Recreational Boaters of California. We're finding the boating community, of course, about impacts of $17 billion economy, state of California, 900,000 registered boats. Uh, we partner with Boat US at the national level, 500,000 boating families. And we're finding our community that's very well aware of the RFS, especially here in California with the environmental awareness we have. In fact, boaters are paying $20 every time they register a boat to support three different programs to look at alternative fuels and implementation of facilities and that kind of thing. So we have that awareness, but we're finding uh, in, on the waterways that the experience with E10 is quite negative for the boats due to phase separation and other issues that occur. An example of the safety would be uh, Boat US, you know, boat, um, uh, Tow Boat US and Vessel Assist find that of the 600 different uh, ports they're in, 300 different uh, tow boats that they have 20% of the tows that they are involved in have to do with ethanol fuel issues, and okay, 25%. So, yeah. so, so it's point. not good to put ethanol in your boat. New well, color. it's not that it's not good. There, there, is, a, there is an issue in that uh, ethanol, you don't being towed. ethanol is very hydroscopic. So when it finds water, it blends with the water, and ethanol, I mean, water and gasoline don't mix, so it separates, phase separation is, a, is an issue. So there's a housekeeping issue in terms of how you manage your fuels. There also is a need. The state of Oregon uh, does provide for, for the boating community uh, pure gasoline without ethanol. I'm in favor of that here in California. I think there's a, there's a rationale for being able to uh, access uh, gasoline for the boating community that doesn't have ethanol in it. You know, again, it's all about choice. And if the, in the boating world, we, we need to provide that choice, just like in Canada. If you had, uh, at the pump, you pull in with a flex fuel vehicle and you bought zero, five, 30, 100% ethanol, I'm fine. Let the consumers choose. And we'd be using a heck of a lot more ethanol today in that scenario. And what's stopping that consumer choice? Uh, the, uh, the oil industry who has a petroleum monopoly mandate. It's not, you know, it's not an ethanol mandate. What we have is a petroleum mandate that we've been able to, to jar to the tune of 10% choice, but it's not the true choice because we need the, the engine technology and the consumers in the game like they are in Brazil. So it's, it's laws like the open fuel standard. That would get us there to where car companies need to provide um, alternative vehicles that can run on alternative fuels, and the retailers need to provide pumps, whether it's uh, ethanol, whether it's natural gas, electricity. Um, those are the kind of initiatives, because I don't fault the oil companies for loving the fact that, you know, they control the system, but it's really not in the best interest of the consumer, the environment, the economy, and our energy security for this to continue. Colin Carter, is there a petroleum monopoly? The, the same oil companies operate in Canada, so I don't think it's oil companies. The, the main difference is big corn. It's, it's the corn lobby that insists on uh, taking away consumer choice and well, why did that mandating choice in Canada? that why? we must use ethanol in our vehicles. But how did that choice come about in Brazil and Canada? Was that government-driven? It wasn't the, the petroleum industry saying, hey, we want to have choices. Right? The lobby, the, the agricultural lobby groups are not as powerful. Okay. There's a renewable fuel standard in Canada. How they're implementing it may be different, but it is, is, yeah. uh, it is as stringent as the United yeah. States. Uh, they're, you know, obviously in Brazil, you're, you, you buy 25% ethanol or 100% ethanol. Those are your choices there. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome. Yeah, yes, Mr. Kohler, I, I absolutely agree with you that making the use of ethanol in our fuel 
voluntary instead of mandated is just the right place to go. And that the question about the boats and motorcycles and old cars, etc., then people have a choice. But my question is, what about the CAFE standards, and does that significantly increase the amount of oil we're using and the profits of the oil companies? And this is, is this really a big welfare program for the oil companies rather than the corn squeezers? Thank you. Do fuel standards uh, actually, that actually reduces demand yeah, they, for oil, so. Yeah, the CAFE standards are going to significantly reduce petroleum use, and I think given the, the need for higher octane to power those engines that are going to have to be more efficient, will increase the use of biofuels, but overall will decrease the use of petroleum and carbon-based fuels, and will also encourage a significant amount of electrical vehicles, which I'm a huge supporter of. My next, I drive a hybrid vehicle, and then our family van is an E85 vehicle. Well, my next vehicle will be a plug-in hybrid uh, that I hope will be able to run on flex fuels and, and ethanol, but that currently is not on the market. The Chevy Volt was supposed to have been that. Um, so choice, but with a policy direction that says we've got to reduce the amount of petroleum that we're using and bring on a whole host of alternatives, which includes less fuel through more efficient combustion and alternatives such as electricity. Let's have our next question in Climate One. Welcome. Uh, good, good evening, panelists. Uh, my name is Nicholas Harris. I'm with the American Motorcyclist Association. And, and like the boating industry, many of our members have a, a number of concerns with E10 and in particular E15. So part of my question is uh, CARB already has come out and said E15 will not be available for sale in California in the near-term couple of years. And so I'm curious as to uh, the response to that as far as as this fuel becomes more common. And likewise, uh, our concern is the blender pumps. And this was brought to the EPA's attention, and they originally said, well, we'll implement a four-gallon minimum for purchase. And we pointed out that there's a number of vehicles on the market that our, our members own that do not hold four gallons of fuel. So I've heard a lot of talk of choice, but I'm concerned that choice from a single pump with a single hose is not going to give us the choice we would like to see. So I would like to see some sort of implementation of a separate pump or a separate hose, like in the case of diesel fuel. And I'd like to hear your comments on that. Thank you. Well, the, in the, uh, you're right. The state of California, because it has its own fuel regulations, it will be at least two years before we see any greater than 10%. Now, you can do E85 in California, and there's actually quite a few pumps and, and quite a number of vehicles. Um, so, you know, that will be addressed. That's an issue that the California Air Resources Board um, should address. So everybody's needs are, are met. But uh, we do know that uh, about 75% of the vehicles on the road have been approved by the EPA to run on E15. And uh, we need to get on with that so that that fuel is available to those vehicles that uh, can run very efficiently on that fuel. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, thank you. My name is Paul Amaral. I'm with the American Energy Society. My question regards uh, land use and also the use of water. So, of course, planting acres upon acres of corn ethanol will, will uh, create great demand for, for more water, from which is a scarce resource. And then, of course, uh, alternative uses for that land it could be used for, of course, other agricultural products, uh, uh, food food products. Thank you. I'd like to take I, it back. Colin I, Carter? I can respond, but uh, maybe Neil can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I think he <laughs> – of course you can. <laughs> uh, I've uh, seen statistics that suggest to produce a gallon of uh, corn ethanol uh, takes about 170 gallons of water uh, versus a gallon of gasoline takes, you know, less than 10, something like that. So it's a, it's a big water user, corn ethanol. And you talk about land use, it's very significant, as Michael suggested. Uh, this year we're using about 45 million acres in the United States for uh, corn ethanol and biodiesel. Uh, that's roughly one half of the area that's cropped in the U.S. Corn Belt. It's going for fuel. Neil Curley? Neil. We have less ground in corn production today than we did in 1925. So, I mean, you know, we, we've just done it more efficiently. Again, it's not this zero-sum game. We provided more corn for non-ethanol uses uh, since 2005. So I think that issue's been addressed. On water, I, I must, not that you're wrong in terms of the amount of water used, but what you're accounting for is the God-given water. So 85% of the corn grown in the United States, which is why there's drought issues and concerns and volatility, uh, comes from rainfall. Uh, the actual water used in ethanol production 
Again, I mentioned earlier, it's been a 40% uh, improvement in that efficiency. Our industry uses about two and a half gallons of water to make a gallon of ethanol. To put that in context, I think we use 20 gallons of water to make a cup of coffee, um, something greater for a hamburger. Uh, gasoline, on um, the very most efficient processes, starts at three, goes to about 10. Um, so it actually, from a water standpoint, is more efficient. On land use, there has been, again, I refer to this hypothetical notion that when we take up a, a acre of land and produce feed and fuel now rather than just the the feed that we're going to have to take out an acre of rainforest in the Amazon. Well, it's just not that simple, and the facts don't support that either. So last year, the Brazilian Institute of Space, I believe is what they're called, um, through satellite uh, investigation, determined that deforestation 2012 over 2011 was 22% less. And it's been uh, a, a, a five-fold decrease since 2005 when the renewal fuel standard was passed. So really, this notion that deforestation is happening because of ethanol production, quite the opposite appears to be true. Inverse correlation. Uh, correlation. Ethanol production has gone up, and the uh, rainforest deforestation has gone down. Ethanol can't claim credit for that. We've seen great policies in Brazil and elsewhere, but to suggest that Ethanol production is resulting in deforestation really does not hold up to analysis. Michael Marsh? Yeah, I'd like to address that just a little bit because when we've seen this, as, as Dr. Carter indicates, this explosive growth in, uh, in corn production in the United States in order to, to feed the ethanol uh, industry, um, we have seen that some of these lands that have historically been out of production are brought into production. A lot of them are highly erodible, so you have that consequence. Mm-hmm. And with the rainfall that they did have this year in the uh, in the in the Mississippi River ba- uh, basin, uh, we have uh, unfortunately the largest uh, area of hypoxia in the Gulf of Mexico. And of course, scientists are saying suggesting that that's because of the nitrogen fertilizers used to produce the corn in the Midwest. Now, that's another con- consequence. I went to uh, get a salad in San Francisco recently and, and, and chided a, a local vendor for, why are you using plastic forks instead of those corn-based forks? And she just ripped into me about this <laughs> dead zone in the Mississippi that's yeah. the result of corn and forks. And I was like, okay, I got a lesson. Let's have our next audience question. Uh, so earlier this month, the EPA uh, announced that they were going to uh, lower the, the mandates for the 2014 uh, RFS, and uh, I'm uh, interested in, in the panel's thoughts on, on that, the EPA's announcement on that. Neil Curler or Colin Carter? I, I don't Colin think Carter. they've really uh, provided much detail, but perhaps Neil knows more than I do. No, I think they just signaled. They signaled because there was a lot of political, uh, you know, frankly, a lot of misleading discussions about what they could and couldn't do, and I think they wanted to make it clear that it didn't require Congress to change the RFS. You know, if you think there's something wrong with the RFS, it's what's right about the RFS, which is the EPA has broad discretion to address issues, whether they be economic, whether it be technological. And I think that's what the EPA was clearly saying, is that uh, if we need to reduce the advanced biofuel targets, to as Colin appropriately pointed out, we don't produce a billion gallons of cellulose ethanol. We shouldn't have a requirement that oil companies use that. The EPA has full discretion on an annual basis uh, to address that and say these targets are now X for 2014 rather than the Y that was in the statute. And so I, that's what the EPA was signaling is that they uh, intend to do that. Uh, Gina McCarthy, who is the, the, newly, um, uh, the newly appointed U.S. EPA administrator, has uh, reiterated the administration's strong support for the RFS as a cornerstone of the, the energy and environmental policy, and also reiterated that we have the flexibility to make sure the program is workable. Last audience question. Yes, sir. Hey there. Uh, Serge Gish, uh, AMA member and a legislative affairs editor for City Bike Magazine. I wanted to re-ask Nick from the AMA's question about blender pumps. You pointed out that about 85% of vehicles, uh, Neil, uh, about uh, 85% of vehicles on the road can use uh, E15, but the 15% including a includes a whole bunch of motorcycles who have small tanks and can't use that, or there are signs that they can't use that. Can you speak a little more on that part of the, the question? Uh, yes, that the uh, as E15 is rolled out, you can have essentially ethanol in one tank underground, gasoline in the other, and it can have 10% ethanol, and you can continue to get 10%. So the notion that the market is going to move exclusively to E15 
is actually not correct. The market will supply the fuel that the consumers want from E10 to E85, and in states that are allowing it, and for the boaters, which I support, a pure gasoline product. So, hold on. We're, 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 you guys can talk, finish that offline. We're, we got to finish this. Okay. Uh, we got to finish this up, and I want to uh, finish by asking you each briefly what you are doing yourselves to manage and reduce your own carbon footprint, starting with uh, Michael Marsh. I have an E85 car. <laughs> After all this, you've been sitting here? I do. <laughs> We're partners. I said that earlier. <laughs> and I'm working with my farmers to see what we can do. on. But Colin would say that tillage. you're not doing much, so um, uh, that doesn't help you. Your carbon conservation footprint. tillage, uh, methane digesters on dairy farms, uh, whatever we can do. Neil Curler, you've talked a little bit about your vehicles. What else are you doing to manage your carbon footprint? I ride a bike. I live in Davis, California, and I mostly uh, get around town on bike. So uh, our van, other than when we're on trips, tends to, to stay in the driveway. I uh, Typically, when I come to San Francisco, I almost invariably take the train, but because of not being able to get back out in time, I, I drove to a BART station in my my hybrid, and then barred it in. So I, I try to do what I can. There's a lot more I can do. I fly around in airplanes a lot more than I'm comfortable with from a carbon footprint standpoint. Um, but uh, I teach my children that this is a very important value because really it's up to their generation, the ones beyond, to, to make the difference that we all have to make. Colin Carter? Um, I'm going to start doing what Neil does. Uh, <laughs> uh, ride my bike more often. But seriously, um, I've been thinking about an electric car, but my concern about electric cars is oftentimes that electricity is generated with uh, coal-fired plants or something like that. So not in California. Quite there, not in California, but uh, we're not quite there yet. It's, but it's still part of the grid. So, so you're not currently doing anything, but you're going to do some things to manage. I, I'm going to keep my eye on Neil. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have to end it there. Our thanks uh, to you all coming uh, to Climate One today. We've been talking about corn, cars, and cows with Colin Carter, professor of agricultural economics at UC Davis, Neil Curler, CEO of Pacific Ethanol, Michael Marsh, CEO of Western United Dairymen. I'm Greg Dalton. A free podcast of this and other iTunes, uh, Climate One programs is available in the iTunes Store. Thank you for all coming today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.